Well, uh, this is not a tremendous amount of news this week. Thankfully, we have a guest who, uh, who I think can fill the void of interesting factoids. Do you want to introduce yourself, guest? Sure. Uh, so my name is Mark Fisher, and um, I am the uh, technical lead for Project Riff at Pivotal. And um, prior to that, I've spent the last decade, more than a decade now, on the um, spring team and uh, started uh, with the spring team in 2006 and then worked on a number of projects there, including um, spring integration and then spring cloud stream, spring cloud data flow and um, spring cloud function as well before shifting over to uh, Riff and serverless and functions as a service and all those fun things uh, about a year ago. And so a decade, what, what's that like? <laughs> it's all been a blur. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess that happens. I mean, I mean, that's uh, let's see if, if you get a laptop for uh, three years, that means you're, you've gotten three different machines from work. Is that right? Or are they different? That, that sounds about right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe on his fourth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got the one with the touchpad on it now? Uh, I do. And that I find annoying. And I'm, I'm just waiting for my uh, chance to get the 32 gig of RAM on the uh, Ooh. 15 inch MacBook. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that would be crazy. Yeah, I, I, my, my wife has an older laptop and uh, I'd forgotten how nice those old uh, buttons are. I guess you would call them keys in the modern era, <laughs> but the man, the keys are, these are nice. They're not all like, I don't know. I mean, this keyboard's fine. It's very functional, but I feel like it's sort of like, it's like, I don't know about your grandparents, but you would go into their, their house and they would have this formal living room that no one, it was, you know, I always thought it was funny. It's a living room that no one lives in and you couldn't touch anything. And these keyboards feel kind of like you're not supposed to touch them. They're just. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, Kote, do you have one of the newer MacBooks? I have an older one, so I still have like HDMI and USB. I don't have to carry around the 50 dongles. Yeah, do you have I'm to carry on, around tons of things? I'm, I'm on dongle style here. Full dongle mode. Okay. I got, I got the yeah, four makes outlets. Sense. Oof, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a problem. What a world. Yeah. yeah. The dongles now have their own firmware. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah, your dongles have dongles. There's too much going on here. I can't get yeah. up. Yeah, you know, when Pivotal sent me sent me this, they sent me one of those. It's the very popular dongle for the USB-C that's got like three USB hubs and an HDMI mm-hmm. and an internet port. And, and it also has a, a micro SD card. And it actually is, I enjoy the functionality of it, right? Because you can put in like a little USB US, SD card and, and uh, you know, have storage on there. And it's fun to have the, the internet. But the problem is you get the 15-inch one. And I think the power pass through doesn't work, right? So, so because that would be awesome if I actually just had one thing to plug in. Uh, sure, but I don't. <laughs> so, you know, that's, it doesn't really doesn't really pay off there. Anyhow, well, there there's no weather this week, but I did want to uh, I did want to do one small update from Amsterdam. I finally mm-hmm. ate uh, some herring, traditional traditional Amsterdam food. Now, I didn't realize that it was raw herring, which is fine. It's no big deal. But, you know, you get this herring and they've, they've uh, de-headed or beheaded. I don't know what the proper fish <laughs> uh, and gutted it and taken off the skin. And then but they leave the tail on and you just kind of like drop it in your mouth and, and eat it. You don't actually just like put it, you know, you chew it uh, and mm-hmm. you kind of like put it in a bed of onions to have it attached there and, uh, and eat it. And and it was good. It's, it's delicious. It's basically like sushi. Like it's not really uh, that much of a different thing. So I think, and then it's quite affordable too. You can make a little lunch out of it. Uh, 
without vegetables. I guess does onion count as a vegetable? That's like a root, isn't no, it? No, that seems fair. Yeah, that'll get your vegetable. That, that picture of you that you're including here is probably we have to turn that into a, a Slack emoji or my new profile picture or something. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, uh, that is good. It is. I do have a small video, so maybe I can load Giphy up and uh, man. <laughs> get ready. Image. Yeah, but it's, it's I, I like it. It's good, and that was from uh, the local grocery store. Imagine mm-hmm. if you got it fresh. And you know, another just before we get started with serious stuff that we get paid mm-hmm. for, another fun factoid about herring is that was I think the first way uh, back, you know, way back when, way way back when that Amsterdam got wealthy is they they invented a new technology, some new kind of boat, so they could go out into the North Sea for like three weeks, and then they also figured out that if you, uh, if you behead and uh, gut and prepare the herring and salt it and stick it in barrels at sea, it would last a long time. So they could, uh, they could make a lot of, of, they could bring a lot of herring in and that, that made them less of money. When, and what's, what I like about that little uh, factoid is it makes you realize that like even back in like the 1400s, there was just trade of barrels of herring just being sent around people would i mean can you imagine eating some raw fish out of a barrel that was four weeks old <laughs> man i can't even come up with some stupid quip about that i don't know if i could yeah so times have improved <laughs> this is the golden age so <laughs> that's right uh, well speaking of the golden age it's yes. been a, it's been a quiet week for uh infrastructure software news i think i think there was some uh relevant to uh to our guest here uh, there was there was some some coverage of like native or native or whatever just some kind of follow-up and analysis which which also brought in some uh, some serverless things and i don't know i'll, I'll put there's some links in there uh for people who, who in the show notes if you want to look at mm-hmm. it but they're just we've kind of talked about those things but have you uh have you caught anything else there in your uh your nets in your uh dutch cog ships <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't know how i do that kind of lead in so uh, a few minutes before we recorded, we actually announced that Steeltoe 2.1 shipped. So if you're a developer and you're using the latest .NET framework, .NET Core, and trying to build these more observable systems, so you're doing distributed tracing or you're trying to have better actuator support for .NET devs, that's great. That's fully available now, so that was nice news. And then I included one in here uh, about that new-ish Intel chip foreshadow, name of the flaw. There was another one of these things that had to quickly get patched. Mm. And another one of these that you can either run around with your, you know, kind of head cut off trying to figure out how to patch systems and contact your OS vendor and roll out updates and figure out what breaks. We didn't really make a big deal of it because Ubuntu patched it. We rolled it out to customers and many of them are already updated because of Bosch and course. So again, we like to talk about the operating system doesn't necessarily matter a lot to the end person who just wants to run software. It matters a ton as a baseline for what you're running, but when it's embedded in platforms, this stuff becomes boring, even when they're critical updates. So it was kind of neat to see that get rolled out again and keeping you safe if you're running Cloud Foundry. I, w- I, w- you know, I wonder if there's a committee where they name viruses. I'd like to be on that committee. Maybe mm-hmm. they less ominous, just like, you know, happy time. It's the happy time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not super worried about the Intel Daisy problem or something like that. It really just there makes me a you know, buttercup, something yeah. that kind of makes me smile. The, the sunflower exploit. Yeah, yeah, that, that can't be too bad. <laughs> that, that would be nice. Now, now the other the other question. Now I don't want to ask this every week, mm-hmm. but maybe every now and then. How's the book going? Almost done. Oh me, yeah, I'm more than halfway done. I'm feeling pretty good mm. about that. I have had the obligatory one contact with the editor to tell them it will not be on the original schedule. But oh, no, yeah, I think it'll only be one time. 
I think uh, I'll finish it when I'm supposed to now. So it's going, going pretty well. Well, I, fi- I figure book deadlines, any kind of deadline is kind of like, you know, uh, a serving suggestion. It's sort of, you know, add salt to taste. That's kind of what the deadline is, as, as I recall. So yeah, plus or minus three months every day. <laughs> exactly. You might, you might want a pinch of salt or a tablespoon. It depends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, so, so I'm, I'm always trying to finish up a little booklet that I have and I published a, uh, an, an excerpt. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I got, I've gotten a lot of, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't call it faint praise, but it's sort of, uh, some people have told me that I have too many links. And so it takes a long time to read things. So I tried to post mm. a smaller excerpt that uh, maybe still has a lot of links. But anyways, uh, it, it's basically this part on like if you're doing your, uh, your, your, we should work on phrases for this, your digital transformation something, uh-huh. uh, you know, and, and you're trying to be the, uh, the sort of leaders of it. It's probably a good idea not to go it alone because that doesn't really mm. work out very well. So you got to uh, take a page from some classic change management and or just really corporate life and build up some alliances and friendships and things like that. So it's very brief, but it's just a little, little write up of doing that and uh, how some other people in the, I don't know, the pivotal world have done that. And also it gave me the chance over in medium, they have these things, you know, everyone is, has like snap clone things where they make these little <laughs> story cards and wow, mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're doing something over there. Love it. I'm, yeah. I'm using those. It's unfortunate because it's, it's done for a mobile form factor which renders perfectly in your browser on the desktop. But if you open it on the actual mobile device, uh, you have to install the Medium app. So I, mm. I don't know if that really works out well. But it doesn't. No, no, I don't like it. Well, no, your, your, uh, your progress has been good, though. I've liked following the last couple you've done. There's, I think you did one recently around even some measurement of things, right? Of kind of progress right. and things like that. So I really like that one. I'll probably uh, use some of that for an upcoming talk. So nice work. Measurements. Well, that's good to hear. I, I, I love a little measurements. Measurements are, are mysterious and fun. Mm-hmm. I, as, as I've joked about, I think I might even mention this here. Like whenever you're, uh, I don't know if you've had this, if you two have had this experience when you write something, but measurements or metrics are one of those things where you ask people uh, and you know that they know the answer and you're like, well, tell me what metrics that they use. And then they like go on poetically about like, well, what is a pudding? You've got a Yorkshire pudding and like a pudding cup. What is a pudding? And they get all philosophic. And then you're like, okay, I got I got, you know, I got stuff to do in my life. And then, <laughs> and then you write something and you put it in front of them. They're like, let me write you 50 pages on exactly what metrics are. And you're like, come on, how come you didn't just tell me about this uh, in the beginning instead of pudding talk? So right. uh, hope, hopefully that will lick some of that there. So uh, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to say, speaking of pudding talk. Yeah. <laughs> so, so why not, you know, first of all, I was, uh, I was, I was emceeing, uh, which happens to be, uh, some of my initials. Uh, I think the spring, uh, the spring tour, uh, let's see Dallas some time ago mm-hmm. and spring platform tour, I think we call it. And the number one, the, the, thank you. The number one thing that people <laughs> were asking, wanted to ask about that we didn't uh, get to discuss with them was, uh, was project riff. They were all like, what is riff? And so, I mean, I mean, I'm putting the, the clock a little bit back, but back then, let's say this was in the spring. What, what would, how would you have answered them and uh, told them what that was? Sure. Um, well, <clears throat> Riff is a, uh, it's basically a function as a service platform that can run on any Kubernetes installation. So it can run 
on-prem. It can run in, in a public cloud. And um, we, I think that one of the key differentiators for Riff is that we have focused on um, an event-driven model at the core. So every function is invoked based on um, an event. And back in the spring, that would have meant an event um, being sent over Kafka. We were uh, basically coupled to Kafka at the time, but um, building on Kubernetes and, and running that Kafka code in a sidecar so that what the developer needs to provide is just a function that basically acts as a callback. And the sidecar then um, invokes that. So it was kind of the ideas behind some of the spring projects that we had uh, built in the years leading up to that, um, such as especially like Spring Cloud Stream, where you would have a binder to Kafka or Rabbit or some other event-driven uh, messaging middleware. And then the user just writes a function, just writes a callback to be invoked. Um, but we took that model into um, Kubernetes and therefore made it polyglot with um, an extensible model for the actual invokers that, that handle that inversion of control. So, so I, I, have a, I have a slightly uh, off-topic question because you reminded me of something I'm always, I'm always wondering, and especially since you've, you've you know, uh, been, been working on this for like 10 years or in this area. <laughs> like when, 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 you're, when you're working on, I mean, let's, let's, let's say Spring is, well, I guess it's called the Spring Framework. Spring is a framework <laughs> that, that you use for, to build other things. Uh, it's sort of like, I, I guess you could just run Spring on its own. That would be sort of fun be sort of like running an air conditioner with no one in the room. It'd be an interesting experiment. But uh, so when you're building that and you decide to have like um, a dependency, I guess, on something like Kafka, like how do you think through that architecturally? Like, cause you can't, you can't build everything <laughs> in it. Like you, you have to use some other things and like what, I don't know, like how do you think through to do that or not do it and the, the sort of compromises you made or make or the benefits, like what's the, uh, the decision tree for that kind of thing? Well, it's, it's tough because I think usually it involves defining an abstraction and, and getting that abstraction to be the right level where you're not creating the lowest common denominator, but you're actually um, allowing people to choose what they plug in behind that abstraction for certain reasons and be able to expose the value of the reason they chose that thing, but in a way that is still uh, pluggable. And so that usually in a, in a spring based application for something like the binders in spring cloud stream, that means that you can plug in Kafka, you can plug in rabbit, you can plug in um, say Redis streams or, or uh, if you're in a public cloud, you can plug in Kinesis uh, on Amazon, for example. Um, and they're similar enough that an abstraction can define the common model there. And so that's what makes it pluggable. Mm. But then whichever one you choose, um, there may be certain parameters that you could specify in the declarative configuration that allow you to take advantage of some of its core features. Mm. So so essentially, like the what you want to go for is... Uh you can swap out as, as they say, the, the implementation underneath there, or, or you want to get as close to that as possible so that you're not sort of stuck with just the one thing that you, you would need to run. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I asked that cause I think the, uh, 
the first time I encountered this was way, way back when, when I was working uh, on a systems management piece of software. And, uh, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's, there's a, a joke about like, you know, the, the first thing you need to do is invent the world is sort of like <laughs> how you set up any system. Uh, but, but the, the first thing you'd have to do for this system is install, I forget which, which, uh, which Tibco thing it was. I don't think they even owned it back then, but it was just like this. I, I think it was a Corba thing. You had to set up this orb. And I remember when we went to the training, about two hours was spent setting up the orb before you even installed the software. So right. it sort of stuck in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, Mark, what you quick mentioned there kind of in passing was the event-driven sort of foundation of Riff and, and why you felt like that was something that was important. Do you see it as different than how kind of traditional FAS has been up till this point? So what is that, you know, what is that different? Why do you, why do you call that out uniquely? Well, I, th- I do think um, there's a difference in the uh, extent to which it can support messaging patterns, right? So like in mm-hmm. Riff, um, we, by, by having the sidecar communicate with Kafka, one of the things that we could do between the sidecar and the container that hosted the developer's function is to manage that incoming um, stream of events as a an actual stream um, through a gRPC um, service binding, right? So then that means that the developer's code can actually handle streaming input. If you're using Java, you could mm. you could depend on a uh, reactor flux. And if you're using JavaScript, you can depend on a node stream. Um, so there are some use cases that where that's valuable because then the, the, the function developer can can perform windowing operations and MapReduce type operations on the stream of data as opposed to just single input, single output, which we also support, but that's, that's almost like the degenerate case, even if it's, even if it's the uh, 80% case. <laughs> so being able to support right. both of those, it, it's very hard to build a model that takes the other direction. I think where it assumes from day one, everything is just a single HTTP request and then somehow we're going to add streaming on top of those, right? I mean, that architecture, which is, as you say, has kind of been, I don't know, to me it's been, that's the dominant one, right? I mean, functions get spun up via mostly HTTP requests and, and, and there's not much state sharing or any sort of messaging paradigm there. So if you were doing this in a in typical FAS today, would you be using an event stream processor and then bolting functions on that so that you're still passing the data through something that has some of those primitives? Yeah, well, I think, I mean... Um, like I'm thinking, for example, I'd have to use Kinesis with Lambda, right? Or something like that. Is that how we would stitch things together today? Well, okay, so that's an interesting one because in, in, in the Lambda example, if you choose to use Kinesis as your trigger, then you really end up with a different mm-hmm. uh, input type as opposed to if you're connecting your function directly to the API gateway to handle... HTTP requests. And so that's, that's the kind of um, like consistent mm-hmm. model that we're, that we're aiming for to where you can take a, a function and either write it for single input, single output, or streaming in, streaming out, and be able to plug that in to any, um, you know, de- independently of the upstream uh, source of events, right? Right. That makes sense. So tell me a little bit about how we got to Knative, 
So, you know, <laughs> you know, if we were, uh, we, we launched Riff at Spring One Platform next year, kind of took the wraps off. You did a great keynote presentation. You and Dave Sire did a fun breakout. People can go back and watch, which is well worth their time. But, you know, as we were going through the spring and all of a sudden, you know, the team wasn't doing as much Riff stuff and this other work was emerging. What was kind of the, you know, I guess we don't have to get the whole backstory, but more importantly, why? Like, why did these efforts merge? What are you excited about with Knative that might have not happened if Riff had stayed on its current path? Right. I th so I think a, a big part of it is that, um, you know, at Pivotal, we, we talk a lot about the value line, and that's an important uh, concept to our customers. Um, and it's just as important when we're building things internally. So anytime that we discover that there's an, another effort where we could be part of a larger community that's building the foundation of something, um, then it's, it's worth considering that as opposed to, to building it completely on our own. And so when we first heard about Knative, it seemed like there was a significant amount of overlap in the sense that they were adding custom resource definitions to create higher levels of abstraction on top of Kubernetes in order to support serverless workloads and functions. Um, now, to the extent that we looked at what, I mean, obviously we were doing a lot of that in Riff ourselves, and, and it sort of triggered us to evaluate what extent of what we were doing in Riff was more generic and what was more specifically in our uh, differentiation, like the event-driven. Um, paradigm. So a lot of the, the lower level concerns are things that um, like being able to, to scale automatically scaling back to zero, um, providing metrics for the functions that are running, providing the observability of those functions. Like there are a lot of um, common concerns there. And so it made sense for us to at least consider that option. And then as we started collaborating with the team um, at the time, it was, it was Google and then others uh, also started to come on board. Um, and we shared some of our ideas around eventing. And our, our goal was basically to, to see if we could get enough of uh, what we needed to support our model into Knative so that we could still build on top of it and then, and then take advantage of the, uh, what we hope becomes a, a larger ecosystem for the, for the common foundation. Mm -hmm. So, so what can, can you like, uh, like, like throw a, a good illustrative or illustrative example of, of an application you might write in, in this style? Sure. Um, I think so with Knative, there's actually, the idea that that uh, it's it's a, a unified model for scaling, regardless of the type of workload. So they want to be able to support um, anything on the spectrum from from applications to functions in a way that it can be auto scaled and can be um, the life cycle can be managed from the developer's source code. Uh, if you opt into having the build managed by the cluster, then that, that step is also in common. And, um, but for us on the, on the Rift team, we were very focused on function-based runtime, um, the, the actual function-based use cases, right? So things like, um, I mean, there's the classic examples of uh, 
something that runs relatively infrequently, so you don't want to have it um, consuming resources continuously, like the uh, when an image is uploaded to a directory, then you create thumbnails for it, or a video is uploaded and you create different formats um, for that video using a, a converter. Um, but then there's also, in, in our world, many more kind of enterprise use cases where we see that developers are breaking down these monolithic web applications into microservices and some of the most fine-grained pieces that fall out from that end up being good um, examples for, for running as functions. Maybe they're called infrequently or they're um, things that, that can take advantage of streams of events uh, with the model that I was describing earlier. Yeah, it, it seems like, I mean, one of the, one of the examples one sees a lot is like, a, or I, I guess I should say I, I see a lot as like a reservation system. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, even, even at least uh, I assume from a, uh, uh, a consumer, an, a person point of view, I don't know if there's someone who reserves things not on this model, but like even, even when I like go to, to kayak or whatever and just search for flights, like that seems like a sort of one-time operation that might work well, like something just scurries off and looks for things and then returns it and then, you know, crawls off to die somewhere until it's brought back to life again. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, all of those, those, uh, that, that kind of, you know, it, it's interesting, like, like you mentioned uh, the idea of, as we said, whether it's like, you know, from, from zero to in or whatever, or scaling up or being bursty, like that seems to be like a, primary characteristic of interest in in doing serverless and k-native stuff i mean is that am i am i am i overemphasizing that no i I think that's definitely true i mean on one end of the spectrum you're you're scaling to zero for for applications where you don't or at least specific functions within a larger application that that don't need to be continuously serving traffic Uh, some of those might be there's there's always a trade-off it might be that the latency requirements are not um, very important, right? So it's like something that happens offline in reaction to something else, like updating your your uh, flight miles or something after a flight. Like it doesn't need to happen instantaneously. Mm. Um, other examples would be things that are very bursty. And so then you're, you're kind of on the, on the scaling to inside. Um, and that might be because there's irregular traffic or it, there might be something like... Um, a sale for an online retailer. And, and so obviously they have um, very inconsistent traffic and in, in times when they need to scale much higher than the, than the steady state. So yeah. I think that more and more we see that, that even more traditional enterprise use cases start to fall into these categories because operations are running 24 seven and um, things are, are moving online that didn't used to be. And you've got, more and more fine-grained ways of interacting with customers and chatbots, and, and you know, like there's more and more entry points into the system where um, having being able to break things up into more fine-grained components is is useful. Yeah, I, I mean that definitely seems the uh, it, it's it's sort of like the the issue the issue the the fun mind problem I've always had around like like uh, serverless and functional programming stuff is to think about like what are some types of applications that would be a poor fit for that? And, and as you're kind of saying that the reason why it's kind of a weird or, or a delightfully endless question is, well, if you can break things down into components, 
than almost anything can. I don't know, maybe not like video game playing or something. Like maybe <laughs> maybe if there's things that are like extremely real time and high latency, like you just have an ongoing process or whatever. But right. most of life isn't like this this phone call. I don't know if this would work out serverless wise. <laughs> but it's it seems but do you like also a huge amount of things you could break down into uh, a series right. of components that are linked together. Right. If you're starting from scratch, though, I think what's always interesting there is if you were building some of these systems from zero, yeah, but I don't think, Mark, have you seen much that migrates just natively to a function platform? It seems like that's often or at least a refactor or rewrite. So, you know, sometimes I know, Kote, you're interested in also some of the legacy app story here. I guess there's that decision of should you refactor an app into a series of interconnected functions? Or is this something you see for new types of use cases or kind of what's your take on serverless as a whole and how this is supposed to fit into somebody who probably already has a lot of investments in software? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's definitely more uh, of a, it's, it's more appealing as a runtime model for a greenfield development. I think that on the, um, just like pragmatically looking at, the way people break down a monolith is uh, often following patterns like the, the strangling the monolith pattern, right? And usually there's a point mm -hmm. where you reach diminishing returns. So you, you're not going to literally <laughs> break that monolith down into a thousand functions and then you know you're done. It's, uh, it's often just some of the, the pieces get chipped off as, as functions where it's most obvious. And at some point you realize that the rest you, you can leave as it is, but the, the, some of the drivers for that are not only uh, latency requirements or things that run offline or things that are called in frequently, but also once you do have these very fine-grained kind of single responsibility endpoints that can be exposed independently as functions, then you know that the scaling characteristics can be determined based on the traffic to that thing because it's only mm -hmm. called to do that one thing as opposed to some giant web app that is called for a thousand different reasons and it's not easy to, to determine um, how to scale that. So once you get to that really fine grained function, then things like auto scaling become uh, possible where with large web apps with larger surface areas, it's, um, it's not always a, something you can actually <laughs> drive to reality right. auto scaling. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you, uh, from, from talking to you and, and even your answers here, it sounds like you think that you can be quote unquote serverless anywhere, right? I mean, even the Knative, I guess, lends itself to saying it's not just a public cloud only. Thing. On one hand, I see plenty of debate that, hey, serverless is really something that can only happen in public cloud because it's the only place you can literally hide the infrastructure and just up an API or an endpoint versus on-prem, you're going to have Kubernetes pods to deal with virtual physical infrastructure. So stop trying to bring that paradigm on-prem. We should be steering everybody to the public. Kind of where fall on that discussion of should we be investing in quote-unquote serverless-like tech that would run in, a, in your own data center? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think obviously there's um, probably the only thing that, that, that people agree about serverless is that it's a very confusing term <laughs> that nobody agrees on. Um, and I think part of that is how literally do you take it? Um, mm -hmm. And another part of that is because there, there's definitely 
one viewpoint that you, you can't talk about serverless unless it's public cloud, because otherwise you have servers. <laughs> and, um, but then right. you can take that to the extreme and say, well, you know, Amazon also has servers. Uh, eventually there are servers. And, um, you know, if someone at Amazon is using Lambda, does that mean it's not serverless? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so right. I think that one, one way to look at it is that if, and, and this is especially relevant for, for us because it's our primary focal point is that there's the developer experience that's somewhat separate from the operator's experience. And so I think mm -hmm. if you're running serverless on a public cloud, then it ends up um, removing responsibility. Uh, not all of it. I don't think there's any such thing as no ops, but it does remove or at least shift the responsibilities for operators as well as developers. But you can still have something that's called serverless, um, whether you like the term or not, that runs, uh, that provides a simplified experience for developers. And that's just meaning that they, something that they can focus on their code and focus on the smallest scope of the code that's, that's solving a business problem and be able to upload that in some way into the cloud without thinking about actual server processes that they need to manage. So it's Makes very sense. fuzzy, but um, I, mm -hmm. I think splitting it between the developer and operation uh, responsibilities is, is one way to help with that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to nail a term like that because, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean it, it's because basically it's just like there's less stuff developers need to worry about. Mm -hmm. but, but, then, but then on the other hand, you don't want to make them all goofy and be like, you don't need to worry about anything. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's still lots of considerations that need to come into play, but I don't know. I think I think it's like like most terms. It's just like it's it's a little too late to come up with something something new, and then and then we would just debate that. Right, and and I think I mean what's interesting about the points you make about the, uh, overdoing it to where you don't have to worry about anything is that on the flip side there are actually some things that become uh, more of a concern or at least more of a challenge to to worry about when you're running in this kind of a model because, uh, for instance if your containers are going away, scaling to zero, then you need to be able to have access to logs for things that maybe failed, but are now gone. Um, you need to be able to, once you've broken things up into such fine grained functions that all interact with each other in a number of different ways, you need to be able to see the, the trace of a, of a uh, user transaction that spanned a dozen different functions, right? So things like logging and all the observability and, and, um, and metrics, become a bigger challenge, um, at least for the developers of platforms that, that the developers are using. Yeah, one of the things I noticed when uh, I kind of got into this a little more and followed your work on Knative is, yes, there's those things you call out, which, hey, now you have to think of new things and think of instrumentation differently and monitoring and all that. But there's things that I like that we added to Knative or all of us to make it also easier for devs to do in general. Two things you, you quick touched on earlier, but could you explain a little more about the build system, which I think is interesting, and obviously the venting subsystem, which has a lot of, I guess, Rift's heritage in. So to me, those are beyond just the serving component of just run apps, scale them to zero, have revisions, all really good stuff. Mm -hmm. But the build and the vent are actually pretty neat things that are arguably trying to make the developer experience more powerful and, and more interesting. Could you, could you explain those a bit? Sure, yeah. So with the build, um, the, the basic idea in Knative is that you, you – enter the system with a uh, component that it's a custom resource in Kubernetes called configuration. Uh, 
And, and that's the thing that points to the source code or a source image. And so that's basically, those are the two options that you have. You, can, you could have already built an image, whether you did it manually on your laptop and pushed it somewhere, or as part of uh, some CI pipeline, right? There's already an image. Then you just point to the image and the configuration uh, that you either create or update points to that image, and that triggers a deployment. And every time you make a change to a configuration, whether you've changed the image tag or something, then that will trigger a new revision to be deployed. And so that part is the serving core. Now, what's interesting is that if you choose to, then instead of pointing directly to an image in the configuration, you can point to a build uh, process. You basically um, choose a build template and then provide the parameters for that template. And so that could be anything ranging from um, something that we've been working on that's obviously uh, in, the, in the DNA at Pivotal is build pack support, right? So we're working now on uh, Riff, building on top of Knative, being able to use build packs to create the, to ultimately create the image from just a developer's function code and the parameters yeah. that point to what base that needs to be added on top of and, and what other things you, you need to configure. And so that drives a build pack. You can also have something that delegates to, say, the Google Cloud Builder or something that runs um, kind of in-between approach, which is uh, something like Kaneko, which can take um, a Docker file and build an image in a container and then, and then push that. So there are a number of different options, and the whole idea behind the build template is that it's, it's uh, configurable and extensible and, and can support this whole range of of options, but you always have the ability to just come with an image as well. Um, on the eventing side, so that's more about how request traffic uh, makes its way to a route that is sitting in front of those revisions. And um, the idea there is that um, you can plug into event sources, and those could be things like databases or cloud services or file systems and those will be adapted so that the events that come off of those end up um, passing through the uh, route for, for different revisions that they target. And what we uh, were most involved in on the Rift team was, was helping to define a model around a pub subsystem basically. So there's a, there's a custom resource called channel and then there's a custom resource called bus, which is, an implementation that can back those channels. And, and that's where we brought the Kafka implementation from Riff as one example, but now there's also a Google Cloud PubSub implementation of that. And um, there will be others uh, for that bus implementation to back a channel. And the other resource then is the subscription, which allows you to point to a given channel and then uh, have, a, you can have a, a one-to-many relationship from a channel to various uh, services and those services are, are basically the endpoints uh, typically for your revisions that were triggered by the, the creation of a, of a Knative configuration. So you can create a model where you maybe are listening to say a GitHub webhook as an input source or a Google Cloud Storage bucket as an input source or any of the number of adapters that we think will start to to grow in, a, in an ecosystem that's driven by the community. And then you, you point those to a channel and then downstream from that channel, you can add different subscribers. And that's the part that we needed to 
have at a level that we could re-platform Riff. And, um, and, and so we were able to do that. And now we're continuing to make those contributions there. Well, well so, uh, you know, I think, I think as you're describing, to use one of my favorite templates for things, like, like any good technology, it can be as uh, complicated as you don't want it to be. <laughs> and, and, and to that end, like I, like putting aside the legacy stuff, uh, cause I mean, you've kind of covered that in regards to the, the following questions or as much as is necessary. Like if, if you were sitting down to like, let's say you can pick something else, but make a reservation system, like mm-hmm. what kind of planning do you start doing? Uh, you know, if you're going to do things in a serverless way and, and, and let's assume the old thing, you know, of like, you validate that this is the right technology to pick and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But like, w- what kind of pre-planning architecture stuff do you do? What, what, what do you think through of we need these components and what's the big wall look like that you got a bunch of boxes and lines on? <laughs> well, I mean, I think to a large extent, it's, it's similar to any kind of greenfield microservices type approach where um, most of the ideas from uh, domain-driven design apply. So you, you think about where are your bounded contexts, where does your state for each of those need to be stored, and which things interact with each other, and what makes up the aggregates that are being shared uh, between those boundaries. And then you map those things themselves into functions. And the the state that they need would be mapped into services that, that those functions need to connect to. Well, that makes sense. I, I yeah, mean, it's a good I think, question. Uh, I, I, it, it, it seems like the key thing is always, uh, you know, where, where's your state? <laughs> right. I shouldn't yeah. say the key, it's not the key thing, uh, but it's a... Uh, it's a, what would you say, a necessary thing? You always have to have that involved somewhere. Right. Yeah, so one of those technologies that you may have chosen ahead of time that Cote just mentioned, but one that we didn't talk about here, but sometimes I've seen kind of get mixed up as we talk about Knative and Riff and things like that is Spring Cloud function. I know you had some involvement in that. So that's not the same as Riff. It's not the same as Knative. Could you kind of talk about this other piece of the pivotal serverless universe and Spring Cloud function and kind of summarize what that is? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think from my from my perspective, there's there's a um, an evolutionary aspect to this as well because I, I started working on Spring Cloud Function when I was first looking at um, what serverless could mean for Spring developers and taking the typical Spring philosophy of things, which is basically all about inversion of control and letting developers focus on business logic. And uh, we usually refer to the Hollywood principle, right? Like, don't call us, we'll call you. And so extending that framework up to the level where we'll call you with the smallest amount of code that you could possibly need to, to worry about, and that could just be a function. Um, so that was, that was the original idea behind Spring Cloud Function. And, and in some sense, it was just an evolution itself of Spring Cloud Stream, where with Spring Cloud Stream, you would configure... The, the binder through properties, like I want to connect to Kafka or I want to connect to Rabbit. And then my code is in this one class annotated with stream listener. And so Spring Cloud Function basically just said, you don't need to annotate anything. You can just provide a function. And if you're building an app that exposes a single function, it was very easy to, to just provide the function and then let us provide 
the dependencies that wrapped that up into something runnable. And what that meant is then, uh, because in addition to inversion and control, we also want to have portability so that you can write the same code locally that you're running on some platform. And what I was noticing at the time is that even though fast platforms like Lambda are focused on the developer writing a smaller amount of code, there was still something about the platform in the contract that you had to implement, especially for Java, I would say. It's maybe not as much the case for, for JavaScript, but you would need to extend the framework classes or implement the framework's interfaces. And so what we did with Spring Cloud Function is we provided just the thinnest possible layer that implemented or extended the, the target platform and then that layer calls your code. And so you can swap out different dependencies for different of those adapter layers to run on different FAS runtimes like Lambda and, and uh, Azure and, um, and OpenWhisk as well. So mm -hmm. we have adapters for all of those. And then since Spring Cloud Function could also be used as just a Spring Boot app, which means it can be an executable jar, that's where things maybe start to seem blurry because I can take a Spring Cloud Function app and just run it um, on its own. And so that's where mm -hmm. it feels like it's not just a framework, it's also a runtime. Um, but we, we build on top of that actually for Riff. If you're building a Java application in Riff, then you just provide the function, like the literal Java util function function implementation. And, um, and that gets laid on top of a base image that has the Java function invoker, which is actually a Spring Cloud function um, foundation and it's a boot app that then spins up in the container in riff on Knative. <laughs> Lots of layers there, but, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. well, well, so, I mean, well, well, as always, if you don't want like a, uh, <laughs> what we were talking about earlier, if you don't want a, a tremendous amount of dependency and lock-in, then you need layers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, right. like layers are the answer to that. But I mean, you're, I mean, spring cloud functions kind of, you bring the fez versus riff as you bring the function. Is that, at least coarsely fair? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I mean even taking your, the, the idea of inversion of control always uh, with Spring um, has always been that you, you build a jar from the dependencies, the, the framework dependencies, and then also your code, right? And with the, the difference really with Riff is that we cross over this line where you don't bring the, the framework dependencies in your jar. You just give us the jar that's the function. And so instead of, it's not only don't call us, we'll call you, but it's even don't depend on us, we'll depend on you. And so you just, the, the container that spins up has the user provided code as mm -hmm. a dependency that it then loads and invokes. Um, Got it. So then you, as a developer, you can write unit tests for that function, but you don't even, unless you, choose to use a spring library for something within the scope of your code. You don't even have the dependencies on the framework um, in your artifact. Hmm. That makes sense. Well, uh, thanks for being on to go over this stuff. It was nice. We get to talk about fish and then, uh, <laughs> and, you know, don't sure. depend on us. We'll depend on you. It's, it's that, that was good. So uh, I mean, I mean, finally, um, what, what do you think, like, like what are, what are y'all planning on doing over the next year or so? Like what's, what's the sense for the roadmap that you'll have? Well, I mean, there's quite a bit, it's still an early project. Um, and there's, uh, I, I think 
the K native uh, release right now is 0.11 and um, same for project riff. So we, we, uh, when we sort of went into uh, a quiet period where we were working on K native, but before it was public, we stopped um, somewhat intentionally on version 007. And uh, we recently, after replatforming on K native released version 0.1. So uh, in both cases, there's a zero in the first, Digit, so that shows that we have um, we still have some work to do. Um, we're also focused on the on the pivotal side on the um, building the pivotal function service on top of Riff as well. So that will be our commercial offering, and that's part of the pivotal cloud foundry umbrella. Um, so there's there's quite a bit going on there as well, running Riff as a replatformed on Knative component on top of Pivotal's container service and um, and thinking more about what those commercial features are uh, for that and um, and and definitely all of those challenges that I mentioned earlier around observability and tracing and metrics and, and things that really turn it into a full platform. Mm. As you say, there's 0.3 more percent work to do, or not percent, 0.3 more work to do. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no, that makes sense. And and then and then uh, I mean, if people want to find more, I'm I'm sure they can. Uh, you know, if they wanted to get a hold of it or like read through the docs or whatever, what would you point them to? So there's projectrift.io for Rift itself. Um, there's the uh, PFS site on Pivotal.io, and for Knative, there's the uh, GitHub org, which is Knative, um, and there is a um, I guess that pretty much covers uh, the entry points. Everything else is accessible from there. <laughs> well, good. Well, thanks again for being on and uh, for the listeners. As always, thanks for listening. This has been Pivotal Conversations, and you can find uh, this episode and all the other ones listed at soundcloud.com slash pivotalconversations. And every Thursday or so, uh, we post the full show notes where you can see those things that we skipped over and uh, maybe I'll put a picture of me eating a herring. That'll be fun. Uh, over on pivotal.io slash podcast. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>